We've been in this series that was written to a group of Christians who were struggling with persecution and troubles because of their relationship with Christ. And as a result, this writer who is anonymous writes as a church leader to the group of first century Hebrews, and he says, I want you to know that running the race is going to take perseverance. Living the life as a Christ follower is going to be hard. It's going to be a marathon. And so we have been learning from Hebrews chapter 12 what it means to run the race with perseverance. That along the ways, there's going to be obstacles, hindrances, sins that so easily entangle us or distract us from running the race well. But all this running's got to get somewhere. And in the end, what we learned last week at the end of Hebrews chapter 12 is that the finish line is this place called Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a symbolic uh, name for heaven. That at the end of the race, after we've run this race on earth, after we are done with this life, the finish line will be where we will enter into the presence of Almighty God and experience uh, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain. The old things are gone and only the new are there with God, with the angels and festivities that God has prepared for his people. We will enjoy all of eternity in this place that he has prepared and he's making for us heaven. Now, as these people who are struggling in the here and now, and as they look to heaven, as they hear about this heavenly city, I wonder if some of them started to grow wings a little bit. Heavenly wings saying, I want to be there. I don't like my life right now, so I'm going to focus in on there. The writer seems to bring gravity down to these people, brings them back down to earth and says, hey, you're not done running this race yet. And so as you run this race, in the meantime, between now and when you get to heaven, you've got some work to do. There are some things that need to be a part of your running. They seem very earthly. They seem uh, in some ways mundane to what uh, is prepared for us. I want you to run your race well. And in order to do that, three things need to become a reality. All of them are going to flow out of this element of Love. And so this morning, let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1, and we're going to go all the way through the end of verse 6, and we're going to learn what we are to do in this race in the meantime between the present here on earth and our future that is in heaven. Let's look at our text. It says the following, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let's stop there. The first thing we need to do in the meantime on the road that leads to heaven in our race is we need to first and foremost participate in a familial hospitality. In a hospitality that makes you look at the world as if it's your family. The author begins and he says, all right, I want something to continue. As you run this race, you've got to run it with love. Now, why is love such an important thing? The reason why love is so important is because we are followers of Jesus Christ and we are in the family of God, and God says that he is love. The book of 1 John says that if we love God, we have to love others. Because if we don't love others, then the love of God is not 
in us. So part and parcel to our running this race well means we have to run the race in an atmosphere, in an attitude, and in actions of love. Now, that's not hard to do until you say, but who do I have to love? You see, we live in a generation, we live in a world that is infatuated with ourselves. It has been coined the selfie generation. That is that we are so enthralled with who we are. You know, in my day, you, you called people, and then we got cell phones, and we started to text people. This generation now is all about pictures, and most of the pictures that you see on kids' cell phones are selfies of themselves, not even full selfies, half selfies of their faces. We are, and I don't mean to demonize this, but there's something, there's an attraction about how we look and who we are. Well, let's just be honest, in the church, both in the days of Hebrews and in our day, the church had a selfie mindset. We were too involved in who we are and what we needed and our wants and desires. Many of you came to church today, and you came with a list of things you needed done for this church service to bring you blessing. You didn't think about what you need to do for others to be blessed. You just were saying, what is it for me? The writer says, if you're going to run this race well... If you are going to run towards Mount Zion, you need to let brotherly love continue. Now, he adds this word brotherly, this idea of brotherly love. In the Greek, it is literally uh, the word Philadelphia. All of you are Greek scholars because when I say Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, you've got it, all right? Literally, this is a love that comes from the same womb. That's literally what the word means. What it means is is that we are extending familial love to a group of people. The question is, who are we to show it to? First and foremost, he says, let this brotherly love, this Philadelphia, be seen within the church. This idea that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That means when we come to the church, when we're a part of the church gathering, we're not here as just co-spectators or co-participants in an event, but we're a part of the family. Now you look at the church and you see that's a big family and it continues to grow. And so how in the world am I supposed to interact and, and spend time with family? Well, have you ever been to a family reunion? Do you say hello to everybody? Probably not, especially as the family reunions get larger. I'm a caterer, and I've catered some large family reunions. What binds them together? Who their mom and dad are, who their ancestors are. Well, we have ancestors. Our God and Father in heaven is our Father, that he's given us the right through Jesus to become his children. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is our elder brother, who is our model, who is our example, who is serving us. And then because we have given our lives to Jesus, just as Caleb showed us this through the waters of baptism, so others have. And what happens is is we merge together as a family. Now, getting together as a family can be difficult. The larger the family gets, the more logistics are going to be needed. Let me explain. In the Bedal house when I was growing up, getting together for family meals was pretty easy. Mom, Dad, Chris, Tim, Joel. Mom and dad would say dinners at this time. We were all there. It was pretty easy. But then uh, my brother passed away, for those that don't know. But Tim and Joel, we went and got a wife. 
Each of us, not just one wife, but each of us a wife. It's my third sermon, lay off, all right? So we have wives, we have children, and now it's getting more difficult. So mom says, hey, let's get together. And now logistics have to be put together. What about this person? What about that person? Can they do it? Can they do it? Wait until those kids start having in-laws. It gets more and more difficult. Some of you moms right now are like, amen. It's hard to get the family together. The issue isn't that we're all together at once. The issue is that when we're together, there is something that binds us together. So my dad, the patriarch of the family, does a really good job of all the time making sure that there's this one statement, this one thing that he wants all the family to know. And he'll be spreading it around in different conversations. And that's what the church is. The church is under this banner Jesus Christ, and because Jesus Christ has exemplified and personalized and personified love, we who are his followers are to, whenever we're together, whether in small groups or serving alongside one another or sitting next to one another in ministry or coming into contact with one another in the parking lot, we are to show love, a familial love to one another. Now, this love then starts to filter its way down. This love that we show within the church doesn't just stay in the church where we become this group of people that all sing kumbaya together and love one another, but we are to leave this place as ambassadors of love. And notice what the text says. We are not to neglect showing hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. So let's stop there. So it starts with, first of all, the church. We are to love one another. Then it is to begin to trickle its way down to strangers. Now, we all have our circle of friends and community. For most of the people, we have made a decision that we're going to love them. The friends we hang out with, the people that we live life together, we've selected them. They're easy most of the time to love strangers are people we don't know enough of. We haven't built a trust with them. We might not even know their name. And God's word says we are to show them brotherly love, and he uses a different word, hospitality, the love of strangers. And so we are called. Now, the reason why we need to show this love, why he exhorts us in this way, is this is a love that you can get away with not showing. If you don't show love to the person in the checkout aisle, they're not going to hold you accountable. They're not going to be like, hey, time out. I know you're a Christian. You should have shown me love. The person you maybe walk by in your neighborhood that you don't know, hey, you, you weren't very loving. The person that maybe doesn't even know you're in their midst that you just seem to pass by them and you know they're there, but maybe they don't. They're not going to hold you accountable. So God's word says, I want to hold you accountable. And I want to say, when you come into contact with strangers, you need to show love. That is, you need to extend yourself and to show the same type of love you would show your family. Now, does that mean all-inclusive? No, there are certain rights and privileges of being a part of a family. But we should not let them stop there. We should show love to one another. We should show love to even those that we don't know. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. This idea of love for a stranger has a contextual reason for it. Number one, 
One of the reasons why the author brings it up is back in the day, there were no Marriott's or Holiday Inn's or Embassy Suites hotels. Back in the day, there weren't uh, places to eat along every exit of the expressway. To be a stranger in a strange land meant you were on your own. There's a good chance you didn't have the right money, the right language, you didn't know the right customs, and so you were open to all types of things. Inns back in the day were known to be brothels and hideouts for bandits. So as a traveler, you ran into the temptation of being around the wrong crowd, especially if you were a Christian, and then also you ran the the opportunity to be prey for those who wanted to hurt you. So one of the things that the author says is, hey, let's be kind to one another. If someone needs a place to stay, then let's give it. The idea of hospitality is opening your home, your heart, and your hands to those maybe who have need. Now, why do we do it? There's a couple of reasons why hospitality is such an important thing. First of all, We have an occasion in our belief system that screams hospitality. You ready? Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, and they gave birth in a manger. Why? Because there was no room in the inn. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, could you not find room? Could you not find room for a woman about to give birth? Could you not find room to give a couple in need? They weren't there because they wanted to be. They weren't there because of bad planning. They were there because the government said they had to be there. And circumstances brought them to a place that they had to be born in a manger in a stall because there was no hospitality in Main, in, in Bethlehem. Say it isn't so, Village Bible Church, that we would fall prey to the same type of lack of hospitality. Because little do we know that maybe what we're doing is we're inviting, we're entertaining angels. The the author brings this up because in the book of Genesis, what we have is Abraham and Lot on two different occasions entertaining strangers, and little do they know they're entertaining people uh, from heaven that we're going to serve to be a greater blessing. What it means is if we would just show hospitality, we might be more blessed because of what we get in return. Not from a financial standpoint or maybe a material standpoint, but we might be a part of more of what God is doing in our midst. And so what the author is saying is open your hearts and your hands and your homes to it. But there's a theological reason. And this makes, listen, our lack of hospitality inexcusable. And here it is. Our whole basis and understanding of salvation goes like this. Jesus Christ had heaven. Heaven was all his property. He had it paid. He had nothing on mortgage. He had nothing on credit cards. God owned heaven. And what Jesus does is Jesus says, I could keep all of this for myself, but he doesn't. Jesus shows hospitality, and he opens his home, he opens his heart, he opens his hands, and what does he do? He invites you and I to be in his family. Do you see why hospitality for the Christian is a must? Well, you haven't seen my house. I don't care about your house. 
You don't understand. I've got this. I've got that. Hospitality is something we should live each and every day of our lives. Why? Because that's exactly what God did for us in our salvation. He opened his heart. He opened his hands. And yes, he opened Mount Zion, heaven, his home, so that we might participate. So let me ask you this morning, where are you at with regards to hospitality? How closed off are you when it comes to your home? when it comes to your heart, when it comes to your hands. Now, he pivots and he says, okay, there's one more place. See, it's kind of trickling down, loving the church and in the family, loving with strangers. And then he finishes, love with prisoners. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So let's stop there. And he says, all right, what about those in prison? Well, why does he bring up those in prison? Because just a chapter beforehand, or two chapters beforehand, he has alluded that some in the church of the people of Hebrews were no longer attending Sunday morning worship because they had been incarcerated for their faith. And so what he's saying is, is hey, you remember, remember Bob? Bob used to be with us, but Bob started sharing his faith at work and his boss put him in jail. Don't forget about Bob. Well, why would the church forget about Bob? Because associating yourself with Bob meant you had a greater chance of being in prison yourself. And so people would forget about Bob for for the role of keeping themselves out of trouble. And so he says, I want you to remember those in prison And he says, as if you're the one in prison, which we'll get to in a moment. But this idea is, is that we need to be on the lookout. Now, I'm so glad I'm a part of a church that has not forgotten prisoners. I'm so thankful for the ministry of Wayside Cross, which we partner with in Master's Touch Ministry that addresses men that are coming out of incarceration and helping them uh, get a new lease on life. I'm so thankful for the dozens of teams that we've sent down to the Danville State Penitentiary where we as men have been able to uh, teach and train men who are incarcerated what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be a father from behind bars to their children. I'm thankful for uh, the Saturdays where uh, a team of men from this church go down and minister to the people in the Kendall County Jail and share the gospel and share a chapel service with them. We have not at Village Bible Church forgotten the prisoners. And this idea of prisoners aren't just prisoners who are in because of their faith, but all types of prisoners. Now, all of this love, all of this, it hinges on us doing some things. Love is not nice, warm, cuddly thoughts about doing something. It's about actually doing it. And so notice a couple of things that we need to do. Number one, for this biblical mandate to work, it takes energy. It takes energy. Let brotherly love continue. It's in the text. That means it's going, and it's an ongoing thing. That means each and every day you get up with this idea, I'm going to show love to the world around me. It may change my schedule. It may change what I do. It may mean I'm going to have to take a detour along the way. It may, I might involve myself with people that maybe I don't usually involve myself with. I am going to do what it takes. I am going to continually live in a spirit and in a lifestyle that shows hospitality. Number two, it's going to take energy. You can't do this sitting on your, on your hands and, and wishing and hoping. You got to get up and do something. Number two, it extends your reach. You got to extend your reach. 
The idea of Philadelphia expresses a mutual regard for another, irregardless of any earthly distinction. So hospitality, biblical brotherly love says red, yellow, black, and white. If they're precious in the sight of God, they're precious in my sight. There's no regard with regards to races or ethnicity. That's what makes the church such a glorious place. We can gather together, not because we're all white or we're all black or all yellow or red or purple or whatever. We're all here because we are sinners in need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so we gather together and we tell a racist world, we tell them, listen, it ain't about race here. We're only about one thing, and that's a sinful race being saved by the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so irregardless of that, so be careful that you don't allow your comfortness or comfortability to keep you from reaching out and ministering to other people. Now, now i got to pause for a second because I know someone's going to call me this week and say, Tim, I love the desire for you to be hospitable, but we've got to use wisdom. We've got to use discernment. Yes. All right? So if you're a petite little lady, all right, and you see Tim Bidall on the side of the road with a flat tire, maybe don't stop, Okay. You're putting yourself into maybe some danger that you're not ready for. There's discernment that needs to be used. But can I tell you, church, we discern way too much. And we don't extend our arms. And the reason why is because we lack empathy. Notice when he says that we are to remember those in prison, he uses empathetic words as if you're there as well. You see, everything changes when we put ourselves in someone else's shoes. It sure is easy to drive by a person who is uh, on the side of the road with a broke down car. It's easy when your cruise control is working and everything in the car is working. But if you've ever been on the side of the road, you know what it's like to change a tire all by yourself. You've been there. And when you're there and you take a moment and stop and like, oh my goodness, I could help. Two people are better than one. The joy that you had when someone stopped for you, the joy when someone reached out and extended a loving arm to you is water to a parched soul. And if we would just put ourselves, now listen, this means we've got to take our eyes off of ourselves and we've got to turn our attention to others. If we would show that kind of love and hospitality, can I tell you something? A whole lot more people would come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus. Because they'd be like, who are these people? They show such love. That's why Jesus told his disciples, they will know you are Christians by what? Your doctrine? No. Your buildings? No. Uh, your gatherings together? No. By your love. So let's start showing love. It means we extend our reach. It means it's going to take some energy. And we're going to put ourselves in other people's shoes because we will then recognize what it's like to be mistreated. Now, the author pivots, and you're like, okay, he goes from hospitality to marital intimacy. How does he do that? And how does that work? It all funnels through love. So we are to show love, point one, to the church family, to strangers, to prisoners. Now the author goes back and he says, of all places that you should show love and hospitality is to you married couples, your spouse. The closest of all neighbors, that person that you live with, that person that you've joined together with in marriage, 
they are to receive your greatest hospitality, your greatest love, and you're to do so all the days of your life together. So the author says in verse 4, we need to pursue sexual purity. And he puts it all around this element of the marital relationship. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So his exhortation now is to the married individuals. But he speaks, first of all, broadly to all. And he says, all right, marriage is to be honored by all. The married in the church, you got to honor marriage. The single in the church, you got to honor it. The young people in the church, you got to honor marriage. The old people, honor it. Men, honor. Women, honor. Marriage. Outside, countries, societies, communities need to honor marriage. Why? Because marriage is elevated above all earthly relationships. Marriage was started in the garden. Before there was sin, there was Adam and Eve in perfection, and the two became one flesh. God was the officiant of that marriage, and he has prescribed for men and women a relationship. For all men and women, no. Marriage does, is not the end-all, be-all. Uh, you do not have to be married to be fulfilled, to honor God, to glorify God. In fact, some of the most godly people in the world, some of the most uh, accomplished people in the world were single individuals. Let's just talk about two, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote more of the Bible than anyone else, and of course, King Jesus. So marriage, again, is not the end-all, be-all, but God has graced marriage for many of us as a gift in partnering with another person. Why? Because two is better than one in many facets of life. And so he's given us this gift of marriage. Now it needs to be honored. That means it needs to be held in high esteem. There was a recent USA Today article that had the heading marriage. And at the bottom it said going out of style. Marriage is being delayed more than ever before, and there may be a lot of reasons for that. But in the article, it talked about how many men and women are foregoing marriage for cohabitation or just no marriage at all. And as a result of that, even the USA Today article said that there are economic issues, there are societal issues to a non-family existence within a society. So even the unbelievers in the world recognize the element that marriage has as to gluing society together, being the bedrock of any given society. Because where there's healthy marriages, there will be healthy families. Where there are healthy families, there will be healthy communities. Where there are healthy marriages, families, and communities, there will be healthy societies and countries and worlds. And so it needs to be elevated. Now there was this idea in the days of the Hebrews that if you're on your way to heaven, why would you mess around with things like marriage? And by the way, King Jesus said, we're not given to marriage in heaven. And so there was this false teaching that was going on saying that you didn't need to be involved in marriage. Marriage, in fact, was a sinful defilement. And the author says right away, hey, church, marriage is a good thing, established by God as a good thing, as a grace that God has given his people. And so we see that it needs to be elevated. Notice it, it needs to be exclusive. Okay. Society says marriage can be anything now. 
The Bible says over and over again, listen to me, I, and I, we can talk about this more if you'd like. I've done a lot of theological classes with regards to the whole issue of homosexuality and, and, and gay marriage and all that, but let me just say this, okay? The Bible always, 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 and only, always and only, speaks about marriage in one way, one man, one woman for a lifetime. Okay, so the Bible, when it speaks about anything else outside of that, and there's a whole list of them, we got our hot button ones, but anything else, the Bible says he will judge. Now, that's not me saying I'm going to judge. That's saying God. He says in here, outside of marriage, I will judge those who are sexually immoral or adulterous. Now, so what it means is if you do not honor marriage in the right way, what happens? You fall into sin. So what dishonors marriage? Let me just give you, it's not all of them, but just so that we know that we don't just touch on the one issue that everybody's wondering, okay, where's Tim at on this issue, that we understand what dishonors marriage? Pornography dishonors marriage. Evil thoughts or sensual thoughts not directed towards your spouse dishonors marriage. Divorce, the breaking down of marriage dishonors marriage. Fornication, that's any sexual activity between two individuals that are not husband and wife. That dishonors God. Homosexuality, the binding, uh, even the marrying according to government officials, the marrying of two people of the same sex dishonors God. And there's a lot of reasons why. And here's the reason. God says the only thing that will bring benefit and blessing to you, both in the here and now and the long term, is that you do marriage and you do sex the way that honors me. And so he says, on this road, on this race that you're running, you need to understand your sexuality has a part in it. Now, we need to understand something, and this is hard for older generations because sexuality was not seen and not heard of. We need to recognize, and I think it's an altogether good thing that this generation has brought up. I just don't think they're doing it in the right way, and that is that sexuality is very much at the core of who we are. We are sexual beings, and it goes deeper than just skin deep, and so we've got to recognize the, the deep struggles and the, and the fall uh, that has taken place in our sexuality sexuality, and we need Jesus in our sexuality now more than ever. And we need him to help us. We need him to grace us with his wisdom and his words because our gen this younger generation is struggling to understand their identity when it comes to sexuality. But nevertheless, it is to be defined as one man and one woman for a lifetime. Now, here's the thing. That relationship you want to know how you honor God in that? You're like, I got it. I'm married to old battle axe here for the last 52 years. Okay? And then she's like, I'm with that deadbeat. He's wrong. It's 53 years. You talk like that, you're dishonoring marriage. You're just in the same lot as the people that are parading around, right? You don't think you are because you, you've got one man, one woman down but you're dishonoring it because you have not made it what it was intended to be. Marriage was to be, listen to me, write this down, exhilarating, not exhausting. And some right now, you are living a sham of a marriage. And you know where the Bible says that's at? It centers around the bedroom. 
The marriage bed is to be undefiled. There is to be passion. There is to be sexuality. Why? Because this very important relationship that God has got, the biggest, most important earthly relationship that anybody can have on earth is a relationship with a spouse. My most important relationship is not the kids. It is one Jesus, it's two Amanda, and then distant third is Noah, Josh, and Luke. All right? I love them, but I love their mom a whole lot more. All right? She is number one in my life. In that, God has given married people an adhesive that keeps them together. That's sex. That's sexual intimacy. I've told it this way. Sex is like concrete bringing two people together and making two one. The only way you break concrete is getting a sledgehammer and a lot of sparks and rock go flying. That's why breaking up a marriage that once was bound by sexual intimacy is a nightmare when it breaks apart. And so what God says is, for my glory and for your good, You need to pursue a passionate marriage. Now listen, I'm not a 20-year-old pastor anymore, okay? Marriage and sexual intimacy at 20 is different than when it's 70, right? It's different, and that's okay. But never let, husbands, never let your pursuit of your wife ever stop. And wives, never stop loving your husband as if it's your first wedding, it's your, your first day of your wedding. Never give that up. Pursue it. Fight for it. The devil wants to destroy it. But on this race, you want to run it well? It involves keeping that marriage bed undefiled and to the glory of God. I could go on, but I'm going to stop there. But I will say one last thing. And that is maybe today you've walked in and I've just thrown a huge bucket of bricks on you. And maybe you find yourself and you're deep in sin. You're deep in pornography. You're going too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're living with somebody. You're struggling with same-sex attractions and, and all of that. And listen, we are all sexual deviants apart from Jesus Christ. And so we're all struggling. And my word for you is this, the same words that Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. And when you give your life and you give your sexuality to Jesus Christ, there may be um, uh, some shame. The Bible says, for now there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But there may be scars along the way. And so get help. Find a trusted friend who can walk you through what it means to work through the scars of broken and sinful sexuality, but don't dirty the very gift that God's given. Now, again, we love, okay? Love, love, um, love the church family, love strangers, love prisoners. Make sure you really love your spouse. Now the author finishes with something. He says, don't love something. Don't love money. Don't love money. Notice he gives us words for material stability. He says we need to practice material stability. The final exhortation goes like this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you uh, and I will not forsake you. So we can calmly say of God, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Okay, we're going to land this plane hard and fast, all right? So stick with me. 
So the one area we are not to love in this subject of love is money. Why? Because money is a trap. The love of money, let me say, is a trap. Money is a tool, just like sex is a tool. But we can use sex and we can use money in ways that dishonor God and hurt us. And so what the author says is, okay, be careful of this because there's one way that is going to easily take you off your race, and that is to start focusing in on the accumulation of things. Money, wealth, possessions. One thing that's going to slow you down in your race to Mount Zion is the U-Haul trailer that you keep loading up more and more. Now, does that mean that you can't possess things? No, I possess things, you possess things, we all have things. But the question is, is our love for them Is it starting to grow and causing our love for God to grow dimmer or less? Notice he says, the way that you get away from this love of money is contentment. Let me give you a couple quotes that I think will be helpful. J.I. Packer puts it this way, contentment is essentially a matter of accepting from God's hand what he sends because we know that God is good, therefore what he gives us is good. C.S. Lewis put it this way, a great reminder for us as followers of Christ. He who has God and everything is no different than the one who has God and nothing. Is your sense of life, your sense of joy, your sense of happiness on the house you live in, the cars you drive, the toys you have, the money that's in the bank account, or is it, God, if I didn't have any of that, I'm thankful for that, I'm grateful for that, but if I didn't have any of that, I would still be just as happy, maybe even not more, because I've got you. And so we've got to ask the question, is the stuff around me, am I making more of it than I should? So let me give you a couple things to walk away from in this. Number one, beware of greed. Beware of greed, but even more important than that, because I think I'm talking to a sensible group of people. I I hope I'm not talking to an overtly greedy group of people. So let me just tell you where I struggle, the grasping for a little more. And you know what happens? You sit in someone's new car and you're like, I've got four tires. I've got an engine. I've got a steering wheel. It's got brakes. It's working. But then I see, but their car talks to you. That'd be nice. I, I like a car talking to me. Well, this car's got all these bells and whistles. This house has this. this. All houses have sides and have roofs, right? They have rooms. But it sure would be nice if that room was a little bigger. You see, for many of us, it's just a little more. Did you know a study was done some time back? And the question was asked of people in poverty to people that were Fortune 500 CEOs who owned millions of dollars and uh, beautiful mansions. And the question was, where is your, uh, where would your happiness be? What, what would you need uh, from a financial standpoint? Do you know what they all said? Just a little more. Across the board. Just a little more. Church, be careful that you're not grabbing for just a little more and losing out on heaven. And missing out on seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. So beware of that. Beware of that. Number two, 
Become generous with what you've got. Contentment says, I've got all I need, so surely I've got a little extra I can give away. First of all, that, that speaks to, of course, the importance of giving back to the church, giving back to God. But even more than that, what can I give away? The greatest weapon, really the only weapon against greed is not less greed, it's generosity. You want to get rid of your greedy heart? Listen to this. You want to test your greedy heart? Start giving some stuff away and see how happy you are. Because you'll know, (laughs) I'll give that. Yeah, that junky thing, I'll give that. But I won't give that. Well, there's your treasure. And so what are you willing to give away? Be generous with what you've got. And then finally, be grateful for what God's already given. What's he given? His presence. His presence. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Is that enough? Is that enough for you to be filled with joy this morning? That God is with me. That God will never leave me. Is that truth enough? Or do I need just a little more? Brothers and sisters, we're in a race. We're in a race that God has called us to run with perseverance. That race is going to end in heaven. And that will be a great and glorious day. But in the meantime, you and I have got some work to do. We need to show love and hospitality to a whole group of people. We need to focus our time and attention in pursuing sexual purity, whether as a married individual or not. And we need to be careful not to allow the love of money to make us unstable in this race that God's called us to. Amen?